and welcome to Opinionated Science brought to you by Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, the neuroscience editor here at Technology Networks, and today I'm joined on this call by my co-editors, Molly Campbell and Ash Board. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Well, we're a team of former scientists turned journalists. We spend most of our day searching deep underground in the mine of research, chucking aside low-quality studies to find the diamond of science our readers want. This podcast, we're going to open up our sooty hands and share some of the most interesting science we have discovered in that day-to-day digging. On this episode, we'll be discussing the fascinating intersection of neuroscience and genomics, known as neurogenomics. Exactly. So, right, that's right, Rory. So, uh, thanks all exciting times, brand new thing here. So it's a really interesting area we're going to get into. Um, I think you've been doing a bit of research into the brain's genes, Rory. Is, is that right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I so, think- sorry, it just, you're, the, you're a neuroscientist here. Molly's a neuroscientist. I'm not. So I think I just wanted to put that out there at first. I want people to know <laughs> straight off the bat, you know, that uh, maybe, maybe I'm the, weak, uh, the weaker one here. But um, if you can tell me, because I'm going to be the one that isn't understanding here, like genes and the brain, like how important is it? Well, I think the, the best place to start, right, is at the beginning, because the genes, genes have an essential role throughout the brain, and that starts right at the beginning of the brain. So at birth, the brain is just like a small, less wrinkly version of the adult brain. But when we go back further into development, if we're looking at, say, the prenatal brain, at like five weeks, it's just a, a small tube, the neural tube it's called, uh, that barely is barely has formed into distinct different types of tissue in the brain. So at that point is when genes kick in um, to try and make it more specialized so it looks like the big lumpy walnut-like thing that we know and love. Um, so at that point, genes do this thing called patterning. And this means that they are expressed or produced more strongly in different areas of the brain, depending on what they're going to end up looking like as an adult. Uh, so at the start, when the brain's just an embryo, that might just mean there's a, a couple of different genes that are patterning the, the wider brain. For example, there's a, a couple which have, I mean, they all have awful, it's just a nightmare having these, these descriptions, isn't it? Why couldn't they be called like brain gene number one or brain gene number three? No, they're called things like what we got, PAX6 and EMX2. So Hang on, everyone. But if you can think of those, think of those. We only have two at the moment, but we're going to get more in. We've got PAX6 and and EMX2, and they essentially form a little gradient along this this tube. So, sorry, so so with this, the PAX6, EMX2, are those the ones that sort of starting in the early development phase, or are those just two random ones that you've uh, plucked? Those are are some of the first ones that kick in. Okay. Their role is to tell this neural tube which end of you is going to be the front of the brain and which end's going to be the back of the brain. Right. So I think PAX6 is the one at the front of the brain, and EMX2 is expressed or produced more strongly at the back. Okay. So essentially, the genes tell the brain what it's going to become and how it's going to form. So you can imagine that any developmental problems in that process where maybe the gene expression goes awry, that can lead to some pretty serious problems with the, the brain's mm-hmm. development. Um, but after that embryonic stage, when we get to the fetal brain, uh, you know, at this point, you really have to have the, the degree in developmental neuroscience to, to keep up with everything because we've got a ton of different signaling molecules. These are, these are 
again, types of genes that pattern the brain, things like FTF8, the wince, the bumps. There's one called Sonic Hedgehog. I'd... I mean, I've got to say at this point, I mean, it's uh, fair play to those scientists. They, they, they saw that opportunity and took it, didn't they? I mean, they, they found it. They, they could have gone with a proper name, but yeah. No, no, it's uh, just improvising really at that point. I think it's kind of a reflection that uh, <laughs> at a certain point, someone will be able to remember it, even if it's just like any gamers in the, in the lab. Um, but the brain essentially starts to, to look like a big patchwork quilt with all these different genes being expressed in different regions and specializing it and making bits look like the left hemisphere and right hemisphere and back and front. And essentially you get more and more genes until the expression levels kind of even out and we get a nice fully formed adult brain. So even in that like early stage, uh, you know, these, this gene expression is so, ex so important and so central to the, the brain's development. So, I mean, again, this is a question from a non-neuroscientist here. The, um, yeah. So, obviously, the genes influence how, as people consider genetics normally, how tall you are, the colour of your eyes, the colour of your hair, etc. Mm -hmm. These genes are obviously um, involved in the brain. Are they dictating, the sh essentially, the shape of the brain and, and, and how that looks? Yeah, I, I mean, they play a pretty central role. There's tons of different aspects of the brain, as you say, a bit like our eye color, for example, which are heritable. So it might not be as obvious as if your parents both have blue eyes, you're pretty darn likely to get blue eyes, but there's often a component of it, which we can trace through families. So your dad's brain is looking the same kind of wrinkly way as your one does, or maybe not, but it's likely to be, um, you know, there's some other features like the, the thickness of the outside of your brain. That's kind of a heritable, heritable thing. Uh, some of the, the density of the, the grey matter and the white matter, which are two different types of tissue within the brain. They're often heritable as well. And then, as you say, all the different regions of the brain, so that's everything from, sorry, motor control to language to vision to, to smell. The arrangement of neurons that control these different things are going to be determined by our genes in some way or another. Uh, there's not a set rate of heritability so it's not just like one number but definitely going to play a, a pretty essential role in the in how the brain um develops and there's you know there's loads of weird interesting things about the brain right you can you can uh, some of the ones i've found like 85 percent of all genes are expressed in the brain at some point in development like okay. the majority of them i i don't know what the other 15 percent are doing they've obviously not arrived at the party um that's more than any other tissue. So your kidneys, your skin, they get left behind. The brain is the brain is the is the winner in that. And there's also other aspects of, of genetics which are unique to the brain, like um, alternative splicing, uh, which is a, a way that, that genes are expressed or as I said earlier, produced in different ways depending on situation and environment. That happens more often in, in the differentiation of neurons than any other type of tissue again. So, as you'd expect, I guess, given that the brain, or anyway, my brain is telling me to say this, uh, the brain is the best and most complex organ. You'd expect it to be, uh, expect it to be the most variable and probably most significant in terms of all these these different things being expressed. And you know, I'll try and think of some of the more of these uh, 
more of these statistics as we go through. I'm sure there's a, a, a few kicking about. Um, but so, yeah, so when you're right, so we're talking about expression. Um, like the one thing I found and I was quite interested in was saying that sort of for a healthy adult, you're looking really at expression profiling. Um, it's staying relatively consistent um, from the late 20s into the late 40s, which I found quite interesting. I because again naively here thought brains are fully developed sort of mid-20s to 30 so i would have assumed sort of the expression would have sort of started to drop around the same sort of time but yeah i was yeah quite interested to read on a, a few sources saying that um the brain continues expressing expressing genes away until sort of like late 40s definitely and i think Rory, um, you might have to correct me on this but isn't it that the brain is one of the sole places in the human body where stem cells continue to be produced sort of throughout all stages of life like the highest rate of stem cells something like that i think this is like a, a still a big area of debate really um, mm. so the production of new cells is called neuro neurons is called neurogenesis yeah. and uh, i'll be going to the society for neuroscience conference uh, in chicago later this year a little uh, little plug for the uh, yes yeah, life um, got, and, got those they need it rory i mean those those guys uh, they're, they're struggling on by yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I think there's actually going to be a special session there where two different sides of the debate around this have a little little battle to decide, uh, decide who's correct because some researchers have marked, they've, they've essentially labelled cells in the brain, which they say in late adults up until the, like, the eighth decade, the ninth decade of life, you know, when people are very old age, they're still finding new neurons being produced but um, other researchers come in and say that is a load of rubbish. So I think it's still up for debate. And I think it's, as you can imagine, pretty hard to, to label these things. Um, like the, what exactly marks out a, a new neuron and not just one that's maybe uh, been kind of like an, an immature state for, for a long time. I think it's hard to, hard to separate them out, which is why it's been such a struggle, but we're not really sure. No. There, was, um, there was somebody looking at, we were talking to some people last week, actually, and um, and this is going to forget the name of the stem cells they were talking about, but they were talking stem cells in the brain. And what I found really interesting there was saying that as these things become dried up and not very good and sort of practically useless in an older brain, um, they they sort of um, transplanted them over to younger rat brains to find that their activity actually kicked off again, and they said it was literally like a binary switch. So it's possible they the way they were describing it to us was essentially that you can you can re you these things can be re-triggered they essentially don't die they essentially seem to go dormant is their sort of uh, take on it and obviously very early days they told us that they discovered this three years ago they published a paper in nature maybe i think at the end of august um but they said sort of the, the past two or three years they've spent essentially just testing and retesting this and if, obviously if it's in nature we're going to assume it's, it's mm -hmm. that's a pretty peer review so um what i'll definitely do is uh we can maybe dump a link to that paper um somewhere around this podcast because it's pretty it's pretty groundbreaking remarkable stuff to be honest yeah definitely I, sorry i just was distracted by that image of like an old dried up brain imagine if they were like really dusty when they came out in old age and they're like <laughs> oh not nice yeah um but uh yeah yeah it's uh it's, it's um as i said measuring them isn't 
isn't particularly easy though. And I think um, I think there's a lot of different techniques they used um, to study the brain. I think I think you were having a look at that, weren't you, Molly? I sure was. So neurogenomics is a really interesting field in that it sort of benefits from the advances that we've seen in genomics and also in neuroscience in terms of technologies available. So obviously you have the completion of the Human Genome Project in genomics in 2003. Sort of in that time since the project was completed, we've seen massive advances in sequencing technologies. Um, and likewise, sort of the past 20, 10 years ago, neuroscience has been deemed the decade of the brain. So mm, yeah, nice, nice terminology there. Um, we've sort of seen a lot of investment in neuroscience research and um, sort of deciphering different brain mechanisms. So sort of the techniques that we use in neurogenomics tend to, they're wanting to look at the genetic composition of the brain, um, both in understanding how it works sort of healthy, physiologically, and then what goes wrong when we see diseased states in the brain. So I was quite lucky to have a conversation with um, a researcher called Dmitry Velmshev that works at UCSF. Um, and he sort of gave me a bit of insight into the past, present and future of the techniques that are at the disposal of research in this field. So I'm going to touch on those a little bit. Um, and basically, so in previous years, researchers in the neurogenomics field have sort of adopted um, microarray approaches, mm -hmm. so prior to sequencing being available, and um, then bulk RNA sequencing. But whilst these have given sort of quite a large amount of insight into the way that genes are interacting in the brain and sort of producing proteins that contribute to cell function, the issue is that essentially in the brain you've got so many different types of cells. You've got neurons, you've got glial cells, astrocytes, etc, etc, and sort of you really need to home in on how each of these individual cells is functioning to get the broader picture of how the brain is working. And so a major advancement here has been the development of single cell genomics um, in this field. And so this allows researchers to look at the DNA sequences within individual cell types within the brain. And sort of as an extension of that, there's RNA sequencing, single cell again. Yeah. And so this allows us to look at the transcriptional profile of cells within the brain. Um, and so basically this, this allows re researchers to kind of see, obviously we have so many different cell types and bar a few cell types in the body, each of these cell types has the same DNA code, but they are having considerably different functions. So using RNA sequencing, we can kind of look at how these genes are being turned on, being turned off in certain areas of the brain and how this is contributing to their overall function, really. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of been a major milestone in recent years in this field. Um, so when I was also chatting to Dimitri, he sort of highlighted to me that there has been some issues surrounding this in the fact that obviously you can't go up to a person legally or morally and ask them to donate their brain for the purpose of scientific research. Yeah. Or steal um, it. Exactly. And so a lot of these technologies, single cell technologies, they require live cells and tissues for analysis. Um, and neuroscience relies heavily on the kind of individuals that sort of donate their samples after death often. Mm -hmm. um, so a nice advancement here has been... Um, the development of single nuclei RNA sequencing. Whoa. Yeah. 
complex, right? <laughs> so um, when did, do you know when that came out, Molly? Like it's... roughly, I I couldn't give you a date or year, but that's perhaps something we could link to um throughout the podcast. But I think from my understanding of my conversation with Demetri, it's very, very recent. Yeah. Um, and I think there's still quite a lot of companies that are developing sort of approaches to this. Um, but it relies heavily on droplet microfluidics. So essentially what this allows researchers to do is rather than isolating the whole cell, which can be problematic in, um, in samples from say brains, they can conduct say analysis on the nuclei itself without the whole cell in, in, um, in its usual form. Um, so this in turn has allowed researchers to look at snap frozen autopsy samples, um, which is obviously really integral to understanding brain diseases. Uh-huh. So that's really, really cool. Now, that's sort of looking at the past and present. If yep. we're looking towards the future. That's not the future. Well, that's not the future, no. There's even more yet to go. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like an infomercial, yeah. Right. But wait, there's more. Wait! <laughs> there's always more. Um, so obviously in neuroscience, we see this a lot in the sort of medical field sides of things. There is an, a lot of reliance on imaging. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, that's how we get to gauge which certain parts of the brain sort of become active in certain states, etc. Um, and so one approach in neurogenomics is to combine genomic studies with imaging techniques. Um, and so collectively, this is termed imaging genomics. So sort of the idea behind this is that if there are certain genes that are being expressed in certain brain regions, how are they contributing to the, the phenotype that we're seeing? So, um, for example, certain parts of the brain, say, as a very broad example, the hippocampus, um, there can be variations in sizing and volume of certain brain structures. So why, why is this happening? It's seen quite a lot in psychiatric disorders as well. I think there's sort of differences mm-hmm. in, in structural size. Um, and so we can use sort of these imaging te- techniques in combination with genomic studies. Um, and sort of a prime example of this is the famous GWAS approach. Um, yep. So for anyone what? that doesn't know about to go there um, thank you <laughs> that that was mainly for me to be perfect <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone that is unfamiliar with a GWAS approach basically these studies involve using a very very large sample often in the thousands um, and basically what researchers are looking for is they sequence the dna of these individuals and they're looking for what we call variants between each individual's genomic makeup Um, And so these small variants that occur between people have been shown in previous research to be implicated in sort of certain phenotypes that we see um, and also certain disease states. So it's really useful for researchers to be able to gauge sort of how these variants that certain people possess contribute to their physiological function. So combining these with imaging studies, what it's allowed researchers to do is identify specific variants in genes that essentially contribute to the volume of certain brain structures. And there's actually quite a lot of consortiums that are looking to do this and invest quite a lot of research time in in understanding sort of how we get these certain structures um, and how our genes sort of produce these different phenotypes, which is really cool. What what is the, sorry Ash, what's what's the best imaging technique? 
What, what different ones do they use? Depends what you to study raw rate. So say you wanted to understand a bit more about the structure of the brain. My understanding is that you would perhaps adopt structural resonance imaging or computer tomography, so the CT scan. Um, if you wanted to conduct a more functional analysis, you might look for a functional MRI, which again is a magnetic resonance imaging. Um, if you wanted to look at the molecular level, I may be incorrect here, but I think it's positron emission tomography. Um, oh, yeah. So there's lots of different sort of tools in this toolbox, basically. I think how we could have avoided all of them if we could just chop up people's brains. You know? I mean, so much more convenient. Scientific ethics, people. It's, uh, <laughs> the sacrifices we make. Well, exactly. Just is a question for sort of like for both of you, I guess. So again, uh -huh. non non neuroscientists here. So you get a diet. All of these studies, whatever you're looking at, you you obviously it's going to be driven around symptoms, isn't it? Would be my assumption. So if if you're wanting to understand, maybe sort of maybe a bit further down the line. So what. Um, for example, the neurogenomics of autism spectrum disorders or the neurogenomics of Alzheimer's and, mm -hmm. and obviously how treatment can then be found from that. How much of a challenge is it that having a diverse range of symptoms, I mean, that must present a massive challenge for researchers in this field because Alzheimer's symptoms are, are vast. The whole, obviously, the spectrum of autism is vast. How do you even begin to sort of wade through that initial challenge and like we i mean that's yeah i, I think it's a, a huge challenge and you know it, it's not even so much it's the variation but it's the point at which you you notice these symptoms like for example um autism is obviously neurodevelopmental but we don't really know for certain at what point in development the any dissimilarities begin is it mm -hmm prenatal is it the first couple of years of life um and as you say there's obviously a, a world of difference between someone with say asperger's syndrome um and someone with severe disabling autism uh and in some cases we we know there's specific genetic changes that happen um like one classic one which i uh, studied in, in a lab in edinburgh is fragile x syndrome um <laughs> this is the most commonly inherited type of intellectual disability uh, I mean that means it only happens in one point for like one or two boys per every 10,000 uh -huh. less than one girl um, but it is nonetheless the most common one and, and it's called Fragile X uh, again I don't know where these scientists come up with these naming so they can be very literal they can be very literal sometimes and other times they can call it like Sonic Hedgehog or whatever but in the case of Fragile X, there literally is a part of the X chromosome which looks fragile because like it's about to fall off uh -huh. because of the mutations we see in Fragile X syndrome. And because it's in the, the X chromosome, that's partly why it's much more common in, in boys because it only requires a mutation in one chromosome to mean that all the, all the guys' X chromosomes are, are mutated, whereas in women, you can have a, a second X chromosome, and you can sometimes have a be, be unaffected or just be a carrier um, of this of this mutation without actually seeing any any issues. But um, that is an example where we kind of know the gene, um, and that's uh, that's that's at one end of the spectrum, and we still don't really know how to to treat it. 
you know okay we can we can talk about gene therapies which are super exciting but we're still quite far away from them being used clinically right so you know even if we're say 20 years off doing anything about fragile x syndrome that's not even to start looking at something like the other entire spectrum of autism which yeah exactly you know, the, the genetic base of basis of full stop i think you can look at it from two perspectives as well so it is obviously problematic that there is so much variation between different people in terms of diseases how diseases present but i suppose also it there is almost benefit to it to researchers in the sense that obviously if we take alzheimer's disease as an example you have sporadic forms in which it arises with absolutely no sort of explanation uh -huh. the familial forms of this disease present with a genetic component and so being able to research the differences between these different types of presentations it, it gives a real insight i suppose um rather than literally sort of stabbing in the dark if that makes sense that you have these sort of genetic components yeah definitely like i always wonder i wonder like we wouldn't be anywhere for example as you say in alzheimer's um without the ability to study the inherited versions, which only make up like a tiny percentage, but that means we create um, models, for example, mouse models, which have that mutation, and we can see that they have some of the symptoms of, of the familial disease. But I mean, it, it does seem a lot of the time like we're not really sure how, you know, if we were to get enough information on the familial forms that we could say come up with a therapy for that, would it be something we could then use for the sporadic disease? Like, you know, another one I was looking into, um, ALS, uh, lateral sclerosis, that's about a 10% of, um, of people with that have an, a, a mutation that leads to that, whereas for the other 9 out of 10, it's, it's sporadic. And I think that definitely seems like the root, right? Because as you say, otherwise we'd just be, be stabbing around in the dark. But um, you do wonder once we, once we get over that first hurdle, will, we, will you come over the hill and then see sort of Everest ahead of you? Or... Are we, are we nearly at the peak of the the, the the curative summit, as it were? Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Sorry, we got pretty deep there, didn't we? For uh, what's uh, episode one? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I I don't even know what, know where we can go from here, to be perfectly honest. But um, <laughs> I guess what I want to say is, for anyone that wonders where we're sort of like the flow we're getting, or where we're kind of pulling all this stuff around, big thing is. Um, We've got an amazing infographic that, that uh, a couple of you guys pulled. Like, well, you, you guys pulled together. It looks absolutely brilliant. So, if you, you want to learn more or you want to see it sort of presented in this beautiful uh, graphical format, we will put a link out at some point to this infographic that sort of spells things out brilliantly. But so hopefully, this is just adding a bit more sort of, uh, I don't know, flesh to that bones, really. So, on that, applications for neurogenomics, the classic thing in science, isn't it? You, and you see it unfortunately more and more is like why the hell are people doing this like what what is the purpose of this Definitely. so what where are like what big grand things obviously we talk alzheimer's we talk auto, autism you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago that um, that that's essentially way off in the future for example so mm -hmm. what are the applications and what is sort of the here and the now i guess a little bit Okay, um, so I think we can divide the applications into sort of three sections. Um, so you could look at it from sort of uh, advancing our basic neuroscience understanding 
Um, so this could, for example, be researchers in academia um, looking at the variations that genes cause in these phenotypes, enhancing sort of our knowledge of molecular and cellular mechanisms of brain function. Um, because at the end of the day, I think we still know more about the, is it the, the ocean than we do about the human brain. Um, so there is so much that researchers are still trying to peel back and understand in genetics and transcriptomics. They really help there. I suppose in, in that respect, then, it's, it's just another tool to the understanding, isn't it? Yeah, it's another tool for the mm -hmm. toolbox, essentially. Um, and these techniques that are modernising sort of year by year are only helping that, really. Yeah. Um, understanding. We can also look at it from the sense of a clinical perspective. Um, so sort of the way that we look at disease is changing. We're sort of seeing that because there are so many different variants in sort of how diseases are presented, how our bodies react to disease, that this understanding sort of allows us to redefine and reclassify diseases based on the new information that we get. Um, mm. and sort of in turn allows us to identify new biomarkers for diseases, for example, proteins, metabolites, that modern technology is allowing us to identify. We now can look and see, you know, X metabolite is actually a, a consequence of X disease. Mm -hmm. but let's take it to the clinical space. Um, and then also from sort of the drug discovery and development side of things, we now know that individuals don't respond to drugs in the same way. There is no sort of one set response that we expect to see from a person to a, a pharmacological agent. Rather, it tends to be that the variants in our body affect largely how we process, we metabolize drugs. Um, I think we've actually got a really great infographic on that as well on uh, Technology Network. Good plug, straight in there with like that. You know that? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we can have variants that really affect how our bodies process drugs and that can affect the efficacy of the drug. So researchers really need to understand that in terms of obviously a lot of um, diseases and um, disorders are treated pharmacologically. So it's understanding how, say, my genetic composition might affect how X drug impacts me, how so, much of it I need for it to work. So essentially personalised medicine. Exactly, yeah. That is yeah. that is definitely where this field is heading. Um, and also the development of drugs based on the identification of new variants. These variants might be new proteins that are targets, etc. Okay. Um, yeah, it's an, it's an explosive field, definitely. Loads of applications. I suppose it's what, what we see everywhere, isn't it? It's essentially that developments, and it's, it's, it's perfect um, demonstration to me of how science evolves. It's like a technique that is like in one, developed for one particular field, is expanded into others, and, and the developments made in, in one area can obviously be benefited into others. A hundred percent. It's sort of what we're seeing with the omics field, isn't it? You know, all of these, these areas began as sort of individual distinct parts of science and we're realizing that we're actually benefiting more if we combine them all together yeah on, on that basis actually i um, i was i got a bit distracted when i was doing a bit of research for this and started looking at neuroproteomics yeah, okay. the emerging field and uh, mm -hmm. i mean very much that is about all i i gleaned from my uh, from my research is a l very fledgling lots more uh, very exciting but lots more um, to be done there definitely and i think um the advances that you see in technologies in proteomics will definitely boost that area. Yeah. 
100%. Yeah, no doubt. Cool, excellent. So, I guess I know we touched on this earlier, but it's basically treating disease. So, obviously, can it help us understand neurological disorders? I mean, I know you touched on Fragile X, worry, ALS, anything else at all there? That you I, think, I think what's so interesting about these is that the each individual disorder can have just very certain genetic components that seem unique and then in other ways they can be be quite similar so you're talking about, about proteomics there uh, and of course proteins can have a huge role to play in uh, in a lot of diseases and and, a, and because all these proteins are being synthesized from genes the genes therefore are having a huge effect on what the, the ultimate disease presentation is like one key one is uh, Huntington's disease. Um, now, this is a, a seriously nasty disorder, and it affects people often just after they've had kids, and doesn't appear in any form before that, which means it often gets passed down um, heritably through uh, through the germline, and it's got a very particular uh, genetic component, which is in this uh, one protein called Huntington. Again, the naming sometimes very unoriginal, sometimes very original. Uh, and within this gene, there's this series of three, uh, three uh, a codon sequence, essentially, and that's like a, a distinct unit of this gene, of genetic information within this gene. Um, and this one reads CAG, so that's uh, three of the four uh, genetic, what are they called? The acids. Nucleotides. That one, thank you. <laughs> I tell you what, I was... You, you were too kind of Molly, you should have let him flounder for a bit. Oi! <laughs> no. <laughs> it's the basics it's the basic stuff you need reminding of sometimes yeah exactly well, I mean, to be fair Rory it comes back to the uh, your your opening saying uh, how we were former scientists so uh, yes yes it's true sorry sorry please please proceed Rory <laughs> gaze need a refresher so uh, it's normal to have this repeat within this this particular gene and in what we'd say healthy people that don't have Huntington's disease, you see it repeated between 10 and 30, 30 or 40 times. And anyone with that number of repeats tends to not have disease. However, in Huntington's disease, that repeat gets extended more and more and more. And eventually you get people with up to 120 um, instances of this repeat. Uh, and when the brain realizes that there's this, this extended repeat uh, present, it begins to chop it up, right? And the chopping means that little fragments are created, which are actually neurotoxic and start damaging the brain. And so as more and more of this is produced, more and more fragments are produced. And as you see with uh, Parkinson's, as you see with some forms of dementia, this buildup of protein just mucks up everything else in the brain and you get this uh, neural death. And from that, you get a lot of the symptoms of these disorders. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, fragile X to, to autism, you have... Huntington's is something we know comes from this mutation and yet we still aren't quite there with the treatment. Whereas something like dementia, we're not even sure if the, the protein production there is something that happens to, to help the brain. Our, our amyloid plaques, which are one key aspect of Alzheimer's, is that something that's done as a protective measure or is it actually causing a lot of the harm? We don't know in that particular case, but in Huntington's, we certainly know the, the gene. We have, a, we have a picture of exactly the gene that's responsible, but a lot of the other mechanisms, like why does it happen at that particular age? What 
are the, the, the ways that we can stop this production or stop this chopping up even happening, we're not sure yet. So it's a, it's a super interesting area. And, and as I said, you know, you could go, there's as many different genetic mechanisms as there are diseases. Um, and it seems like very few neurological disorders don't have a genetic component. It's just the, the go-to is that there, there is some role for genes in there. Cool. Very, very nice. It's, uh, so what I've gleaned from all of this, um, as uh, again, the non-neuroscientist is the huge promise, undoubtedly huge promise, but it's still, despite being, I guess, not too new a field. I mean, when, I mean, it's what come about sort of what, early 2000s, I guess, with the microarrays. Um, there's, there's a lot to be done. Um, but it holds significant promise, I guess, for, uh, for treatment of these neurological uh, conditions. Do you know what I always think about? I always imagine if you're like a billionaire who paid 50 million to have your genome sequenced back in 2006. Imagine being around now and it costs, what, 50p or something. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, the, the advance has been so fast. It's made such a huge difference in such a short period of time. So, you know, we could... Uh, we back for episode 850 of the opinionated science podcast in uh, in a few years time and maybe you know these uh, these genomic techniques will advance so much that we're we're really thinking about cures and therapies for these diseases so it's, it's a really exciting area yeah yeah undoubtedly and it's um, i must admit again from my uh, naive position it wasn't wasn't a field i was hugely sort of au with but uh, it's amazing to learn more about from you guys Great, yeah. Um, I, uh, you got any more thoughts, Molly? Um, I think I've pretty much wrapped up what I wanted to sort of get out there. But yeah, I just think emphasis on this idea it is it's a growing field. There's logistical challenges, um, but I think once these can be overcome, you know, hopefully we'll see the translation from the lab to the clinic more and more. Yeah, it's super exciting. Well. If you've been listening and you can't understand the sound of our voices and you would like to see this in pictorial format, as Ash said, there is a beautiful looking infographic, uh, which we will no doubt package in with this podcast. So please take a look through that and through some of the informative links we'll attach to this as well. Uh, but I think that's all the opinions we're going to have time for today. Uh, so thank you for joining us for our first Opinionated Science. We will no doubt be back next time with more weird and wonderful research. And just, yeah, a big thank you for listening. And um, please subscribe uh, wherever you're listening and give us a review because your opinions matter too. Don't keep it to yourself. So that's all the time for what we have now. Mm -hmm.